How's everybody this morning? Bright and wide awake? Oh, good. I'm going to start with a, a, a what's called a, a prayer of compassion by Longchenpa. Longchenpa is one of those great, great awakened beings of Tibet, great master of uh, Zogchen, great realized master. And this is a uh, what I consider a beautiful uh, prayer of compassion that he wrote. Uh, may the lives of ailing sentient beings be extended and made and made meaningful. May those who are suffering from hunger or thirst obtain sustenance. Those who are afflicted by external fears become fearless. And everything that beings desire be granted exactly as they wish. May all sentient beings do good and swiftly attain enlightenment. May those in power rule with justice. Governments be of service and ministers be endowed with wholesome qualities and the public remain in peace at all times. May all sentient beings be free from all possible forms of suffering. May they attain liberation. Their minds be free of unwholesome states, and their time devoted to realizing their true nature. May there be bountiful harvests in all the lands. May there be no sickness or any threat to life, no conflict between self and others, and peace and prosperity everywhere. May limitless sentient beings in the ten directions be free from suffering. May whatever they put their mind to bear fruit, and may they attain bliss as a result of the merit accumulated from this prayer. It's beautiful. It becomes very, very difficult to, to practice when uh, ministers, kings and queens and government people are up to mischief. makes life hell. It's very, very difficult when people don't have food. It's very, very difficult when people are at war. It's very, very difficult. We're, we're in an extraordinary time right now for some of us where we have all kinds of possibilities. The only thing stopping us is our internal wars. It's quite something, isn't it? It's quite something. Hmm. Well, let's, let's begin. I'm going to show you some more little things to do. These are not techniques. These are, these are principles. But let's, let's warm up. Let's get our, our energy body and our, our body um, a little balanced. I'll just show you something very, very simple. Uh, connected. You know, because sometimes what happens is we, we have habitual patterns that throw off our breath or constrict um, how we feel. And then we come to a class and we're actually kind of not in an optimal place to receive. So what you want to do when you come to a Dharma class, or anywhere, any time of the day, actually, for anything, doesn't matter what it is, is have a vessel that's actually able to be clear and ready to receive and, and give. And that also comes from the physical, physical uh, breath body. So let me show you something very, very simple. If you put your hands on your knees, you can do it sitting on the floor, that's fine. Put your hands on your knees like this and just, just um, sit up straight. Come, come to the edge of the chair. It's much easier, much, much easier. If you come to the end of the chair, put, put the sit bones uh, close to the edge. And now, uh, I want to, I've got a lot of material. I'm going to cover this, finish this text today. 
I don't know how, but I'll there's so much to, to cover, is um, look, look ahead. You don't have to look straight ahead, but just look ahead into, the, into a meter ahead. Let your eyes be open and, and softly focused. But take a bit of an inventory and just feel the body. Feel, how does the body feel? Not as an emotion, but as a series of sensations that give a message or give messages. How does it feel? And then, and not that they're separate, but feel the mind. Is the mind bright? Is it dim? Does it feel depressed? Does it feel hyper? Does it feel low? Does it feel high? Does it feel constricted? What's that feel of the mind like? Okay, that's good. You don't need too much time because if you keep thinking about it, it's just going to get convoluted. So with the hands on the thighs or towards the knees, wherever is comfortable for you, is I'd like you to do the following. Very slowly turn the head to the right as if you're going to turn 180 degrees and without any strain, without pushing it, Just see how far you can look. In other words, pick a spot on the wall and say, okay, that's as far as the head will go, as the eyes will go, without any undue strain. And then slowly come back looking straight ahead. And if you're very, very sensitive and you've, you've got some, some mindfulness and awareness, as you turn the head and you come to place the eyes in that furthest spot without strain, you will feel a different sensation in the body. And if you've got good discrimination, you'll say, aha, it feels good, Kusala in Pali, or Akusala. It doesn't feel quite wholesome, or it doesn't feel quite uplifting, or it feels uplifting. Let's try it again now to the left. Put your detector on. Be very sensitive. Especially the messages from the belly. Do they feel positive? Do they feel negative? Do they feel uplifting? Or is it an aki feeling? And then slowly come back. Now let's turn again to the right. But this time what we're going to do is I'd like you to, as the head turns, you can watch what I do here if you want to watch. This is very simple. As the head turns, extend uh, extend the left leg by just moving like this. See? Just move your body. Watch.
Want to see me go 360s with my head? <laughs> Wouldn't that be cool? You'd be amazed, wouldn't you? Just try that. Let the hands slide. Let the pelvis move very gently. Just let it free itself up and see how far you, you can look and what that feels like in the body. Something's going to have to happen to be able to do it. And then look straight ahead and feel the quality of the mind afterwards. Let's try it to the left. You have to have very good mindfulness. Don't try to do anything, just free it up. How's that feel? Can you describe what the difference is? The lightness and sort of looseness. Can you feel the change in the viscera? You change, feel the change in your guts, feel the change in the messages coming through? And how does the mind feel? What's the mind feel like? It's quite straightforward, isn't it? So it's a very good experiment to show you that how the viscera is, how the, how the guts are, is actually how the brain is. It's that connected. There's no separation. The looseness in your belly, the looseness, the feeling in your, in your guts is actually how you are feeling. And your eyes. They're connected. They're directly connected. Try it again. Try to restrict your breathing and see what the difference is like. Now, try to turn and go. Okay, keep that belly clamped. Just see what see what happens. Or turn your head and hold your breath in your belly and see what the difference is like. Now something straightforward. I don't know how many how many can feel that. You might not get it the first time. Hmm? It's that straightforward. So here you're trying to meditate, and guess what? It's just cut off. So what you're trying to do is actually have a mental activity. It's trying to break through a brick wall with your head when you don't have to. You have to be able to breathe. And the messages must be flowing through sustained, sustained, to be able to sustain a bright mind. The two are connected. 
no good breath, not talking about physical breath, no good sensation breath, then what happens is the mind sinks. Or you want to stimulate a stimulant. But where's the stimulant coming from? Your guts and your heart, all connected to the vagus nerve. We'll, we'll study that on Wednesday, Okay, the science behind meditation. But if the vagus nerve, all that feed into the brain is cut off, it's like trying to put your head through a brick wall and meditate. It just is going to become an artificial push as opposed to a natural. How many people now feel a bit brighter? You can just go, hmm. It's kind of, hmm. Right, that's called meditation. All right, good. So before I uh, enter into the text again, I do want to come back to something I said uh, on either Saturday or Friday. Remember I talked about the story of those, those two, two Ladakhi lamas? And that story is not too, too, uh, wasn't given to say, oh, I'm right and they're wrong. Actually, it's both right and both wrong, but I, and, and not right or wrong. But I want to tell you about something. It's very important. Is many people come to the teaching of Dharma and meditation, thinking that it's meditation. Do everyone want to turn off their, their various devices? Thank you. Yeah, just make sure you've got cell phones off and so on. Actually, after, I don't know how many years of teaching happened to me once. So, so everybody turn their telephones off. <laughs> I like the ones that now, you know, take up 10 minutes. But I did turn it off. They're, they're, you know, in the class, but I did turn it off. It's going on and on and on. But I did turn it off. The, the purpose of that story, which I would say it's a story, but I was there and listened to it pretty carefully since I was participant in it, um, is that the, the reason why those Ladakhi Lamas spent five or six years before they received instructions of mind doing certain uh, practices is it's been found over thousands of years. And this, is, this is specially uh, taught, specially taught in the Tantric Vajrayana teachings. Not so much in the southern schools, but it's there. Is that you can do all the meditation you want but some people, some people, not of course people in this room, but some people find that they have mental, physical impediments to doing the practices. So they get this, this teaching, and they go out the door, and they, they go, okay, I'll try it. And they find that after a day, or half a day, or a week, they go, well, that's not for me, or it's not working. Or they go into retreat for a week, or a month, or ten days, and they go, oh, well, you know, i got some experiences, but it's not working. Why? And this comes down to what leads to successful application of anything. And it turns out that in the teaching of Dharma from the Buddha's time onward, the core principle is not that you teach meditation. The core principle is to free people up is it's the actual merit they have. Now what does that word mean? The word in, in Pali is punya, or in Sanskrit is punya. In, uh, in Pali is punya but in Sanskrit, with a Y. Uh, punya. What does that word mean? Well, it's often translated as strength or merit. It's actually the totality of all the good qualities that you bring to your life that determine 
the unfolding of wisdom and compassion. Not how much meditation you do. This is, this is something that's been found for thousands of years. not just coming from Lama Mark, although I, I would say absolutely 100%. But the teaching is very firm on this point, is that we can give mind teachings, but unless there is a foundation to sustain it, you can have a really cool experience, but when you walk out the door, you'll go, where was that? Or a really cool, some cool experiences in retreat, but where does the sustaining take place? Sustaining takes place through the development of the parami. Ethics, a moral behavior, a moral, a moral mind, a really good moral mind, a generous mind, an energetic mind, a patient mind, all the qualities that sustain concentration, application, interest, focus, practice. Did you follow? So as it says, as I'll read to you in one text about compassion, you can practice compassion for a neon. It doesn't necessarily lead to liberation. But you can practice. But you need something else, and that something else is merit. So it's something I want to bring to you today as a question for you, is so much of the teaching is not just about giving mind instructions, pith pithy pointing out of the nature of mind. Most of the training that you'll do is building merit. So I told the story, I told the story many times, but I was telling it while we were trying to figure out how to make a coffee blend this morning and how to taste it right, is a young student who was with me for uh, six months or so for a while. Uh, He said to me I was going to be leaving a certain country and he said, when you go, I'd like to do a three-month retreat. Is that okay? Because, you know, you do three-month retreats. I want to do one of those long retreats. Well, three months is very short in this, in this tradition. It's extremely short. But he said, I want to do one of those. This is a, a 20, 20-year-old. He said, I want to do one of those. I said, are you kidding? He said, yeah, I want to do one of those. You won't even make it for a week. I want to do one of those. You know, so I'm going to meditate. Master meditator. And I, and I said, no, no, you're not. Oh, yes, I am. No, you're not. It's like, you're going to go to school. No, I'm not. And he said, why not? I said, you're not, you're not going to make it through a week. He said, why? He said, you know, I'm not merit. He said, well, what do I have to do? Well, tell me what I have to do. I said, you've got to pull a thousand uh, cappuccinos for my students. And then we'll talk about a three-month retreat. A thousand cappuccinos. Yeah, by the way, that's a stovetop brica. No, espresso machine. A thousand? I said a thousand. When you can do that, then we'll... And not for yourself. For students. Then we'll talk about a three-month retreat. He said, okay. Thinking I'm completely mad, right? As many Dharma practitioners think, this man's mad, completely cracked. And at the end of a thousand, well, we figured he'd about two thousand. Um... He had a very good three-month retreat. <laughs> a very good three-month retreat. See, it's not actually that that the meditation. It's you have to do. You know, good meditation technique is important. Good meditation instruction is important. Actually, the the understanding of meditation, knowing how to is very important. But actually, what sustains it and allows you to carry on that meditation, and realize its nature, is not the meditation. This is a Western illness. 
This is a serious Western illness. It's not the technique. It's not the pill. It's the mind behind it. If, if you say, I want to learn how to play the, viol- the cello, what sustains you in being successful at playing the cello? It's not the cello. And it's not the teacher. Although the teacher can have a lot to do with it. What is it? It's your strength of character that brings you through. That's what does it. It's your desire to want to be perfecting. Dirty word today, yes. Perfecting in that field. To get really good at it, masterly good at it. And feel the success of its fruits. That's what it is. That's what's in the way. Don't, don't think it's the meditation way. It's not. Mind's not in the way. We know that. Didn't we know that? Did we, did we figure that out from yesterday? Mind's not in the way. Mind's absolutely free and clear. You're, you're, the Buddha nature's residing in you already. It just wants to come out. You know, it's like, a, it's like the, um, the sunlight wants to come out from the clouds. Well, I don't think it does, but... So what's in the way? The clouds are in the way. But the clouds are habit patterns. Does it make sense? And we're the last to know, me included, we're the last to know what our habit patterns are. We think we do. You know, in psychology, it's called the, it's called the success illusion. They have a technical name for this. Or superior, a superior, superiority. Superiority? I think it's called superiority delusion in psychology. And this is the feeling that we actually know ourselves. It's well studied. And we, many of us go around, even if we depreciate ourselves, we actually secretly think that we're special and we're much better at reading other people and ourselves than we are. This is called the superiority delusion. It's been well studied in psychology. They're actually now mapping it with PET scan and MRI to find out where it arises in the brain. And they just figured out where it is. And when they turn it off, they can actually knock out that, that experience. It's very important that you have it. Otherwise, you won't function well in life. Interesting, eh? You have to feel that you're a bit superior to, 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 to go somewhere. So the reason why they're studying it is they, they actually are pretty sure that that area of the brain has been disrupted with people with depression. That's why they're studying it. They want, to, they want to know what it is about that area that gets turned off that seems to have a low level of activation in, in depressive patients. Interesting, eh? It's called the superiority delusion. We all have it. So it's very hard to know about ourselves, isn't it? I can do it. And then find out you can't. Or why? Oh, I know why. Not necessarily. Not necessarily. Okay, so I wanted to bring that to you. Oh, did that upset your cardiovascular system? Okay. Does this make sense? So please understand, contrary to popular opinion, it's not the meditation that liberates. It's awareness that liberates. The the wakeful cognizance liberates. But to have the strength to let it liberate... It's called the, the wisdom mind. To let the wisdom mind liberate you requires that your personality and your strength of character get developed to a, to a place where you're actually interested in doing that. In the Vajrayana tradition, or the Tantric Vajrayana tradition, we consider that that's the central point. So let me go back to the story about the two lamas. 
They were absolutely correct. Why would you introduce mind transmission, the nature of mind, when the character of the beings are weak? And I said, compassion. You either start with the introduction first, and then do the work. Hmm? It's like having a karate master or a martial arts master say, here's the essence. Right? And you go, thanks, I got it. But then you go and you practice 10 or 20, 30,000 times. Or you practice 20, 30,000 times, then you go to the master and say, can you tell me really what I'm doing? And they say, oh, it's this. And they go, oh, thanks, got it. So you either build at the beginning or you build at the end or you build at the middle because we're all different. Sometimes you do a little bit at the beginning. Sometimes you do a little bit at the end. It's, the path is different for different people. Depends where you come in. I met a fellow once who said, well, their teacher told them that they do, I think it was four or six hundred sets of foundation practices. Oh yeah, just classic. That takes you about six or seven years. But if you were doing it in full retreat, that would be uh, one set for about six to eight months in full retreat. And he said, when you do that, then I'll start giving you some other teachings. That's just classic. Just like the Dalai the the Lamas. So he came to me after he finished those because the teacher went back to, to India, disappeared. So what do I do now? Didn't, didn't know what to do. So the question is compassion. Do you introduce it now or do you introduce it later? For Westerners, they're very keen on their mind. They want to know about their mind. For an Easterner, traditional Easterner, as Ante Rinpoche once said to me, you can tell them anything to do and they'll do it. Doesn't mean, they don't even question why they're doing it. They just do it. For a Westerner, you're going to negotiate with me for 40 years. <laughs> it's going to be like, why do I do it? How many should I do? Can you tell me all about it? Could you explain to me? Can you tell me the science behind it? Does it work? Does not? Can you show me the experimental results behind meditation? So I know. Why would I do that? Why would I waste my time? For an Easterner, you just go, oh, Lama says do 40 million. Come back after you 40 million, come see me. Do 40 million. Don't even question it. It's called confidence. It's called faith. In the, in the West, there's no faith that way. Prove to me why would why would I do this kind of weird practice? Does this make sense? Why would I do it? Now, if it's income, that's different. If I say to you, I want you to do four hundred I want you to do four sets of of four hundred thousand each, but at the end we're going to give you thirty thousand dollars. You go, of course, easy. Or a certificate, or a diploma, where you can make money. But if we say we're going to have a six-month retreat, or a year retreat, or a three-month retreat, and you're getting no diploma at the end, just for your own personal development. You go, yeah, but are you sure? Are you sure? But if you do an MA, or even a, uh, a bachelor, there's no guarantee you're going to get any work, is there? But it is a success story. Merit. Merit. Almost all the teachings that you receive are for merit. Including one of the great masters, I'll tell you, one of the great masters of Tibet, Zhaman Kontrol. I'm going to read a, a quote from him at some point. Hopefully today I'll read it. Very short little bit on compassion. He said in his autobiography, if I'd own, this is a, one of the most greatly attained beings in the 19th century, master of masters. If I'd only practiced more developmental stage, generation stage yoga, merit, 
I would have been a more awake being. Here he was practicing these, all these mind trainings and things. He said, if I'd only built more merit. Interesting, eh? One of the greatest teachers Tibet's ever produced saying, if I'd only done more generation stage yoga, I'd be a better being for it. It's merit. Merit. Not to say that you don't practice what I'm, what I'm giving out. But if you want to know where the impediment is, it's the strength. The strength of, of, of character. Now, I don't mean character as a Western character. Strength of inner fiber. And I'm not talking about so much discipline fiber. Because that I've seen people with, with incredible discipline not do well. It's not that. It's generosity. It's love. It's generosity. It's patience. It's interest. Interest in liberation. Interest in compassion. So I just wanted to give you... So, so that's the other side of the story I told you. Why were these two lamas amazed? Because they knew that these Westerners are going to have weaknesses in their system that will not... They might hear the teaching, but how are they going to enact it? And guess what? We worry about that later. When the student has interest, then we start working on the merit. If the student comes and has interest, we work on the merit. So it doesn't really matter. There used to, there's, a, there's, a, there's wonderful stories out of India, ancient India, with these, these strange tantric masters, you see. And these young people, they go to the tantric master in India and they say, uh, because they, they have magic powers, right? They go, I want to be wealthy. Or I want the best bride. I want to be, I want the queen of the district. How am I going to do that? Because I'm just a, a serf or you know, I'm just a, an untouchable. And the master says, I can teach you that. I can teach you how to be wealthy beyond, beyond any, any imagination. And the student goes, oh, please, master, tell me how to be so wealthy. Which mantra is it? And the student, these are, these are famous stories like this. No? The student, and the teacher says, you'll have, to, you'll have to train a little bit. Just train a little bit. What do I need to do, master? Go to the kitchen. Help in the kitchen. But give me the meditation. When you work in the kitchen for a while, I'll give you the meditation. So after about six months in the kitchen, the, the student goes to the master and says, now can you give me the special mantra for becoming incredibly wealthy or getting my bride that I've always wished for? He goes, well, there's some sweeping to do. There's some sweeping out in the corridor. Learn how to sweep. Sweep? I thought you were going to give me the special teachings. Yes, sweep first. Well, this goes on for about five years. <laughs> Sweeping, cooking, doing the beds, building the stupas, building the temple, carving, whatever it is, pounding rocks. After five years, you know, I still want to be wealthy. You do. Well, do this. But you see, after four or five or six years, they've forgotten about being wealthy because what's happening? They're becoming wealthy. Merit. 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 So if you ever want to know why there's an impediment to sustaining and looking directly at the mind and abiding in the mind's nature, I'm trying to save you 20, 30 years. I really am. It's merit. It's merit. Hmm? Now let's turn to the text. 
And remember, this text has been requested by uh, uh, Gomchen. That's a title for a pretty good meditator. He wants to know about the wakeful mind, this word called cognizance. So, in the last episode of this uh, opera, we left off with the line, thus all outer and inner things. That means phenomena. By the way, this is a fantastic translation. This is so hard to translate. I, Eric uh, Pema Kunzang, Richard Barrett, is, is one of the great translators. This is so hard to translate and beautifully done. Thus, all outer and inner things without a single omission, every phenomena that is experienced inner and outer, are exclusively the manifestations of the wakeful quality of one's mind. That is called cognizance. When you recognize that it's just wakefulness, emotions are wakefulness, no thought is wakefulness, thoughts are wakefulness, making a cup of coffee is wakefulness, running is wakefulness, sleeping is wakefulness, every single manifestation of mind is nothing but wakeness, manifesting, like a tablet. Then we have something. Next paragraph. Believing that. Now, the word believing means confidence, not believing. If you believe it intellectually, that's good. Because a lot of the teaching is about believing something, seeing it intellectually, then meditating. First study, develop confidence through study, and then it's easier to meditate. Why? You feel confident. Just don't we, don't we do that? When we feel good about what we're doing, we can go do it. So this word believing, I probably may not have translated it that way. Bless, bless his heart, because he's such a good translator. Probably confidence in that. If there were no cognizant quality, no wakeful quality, there would be no delusion, right? In other words, if all this phenomenon of mind was not there, then there'd be no delusions. In other words, if that, if that mind, that clarity of mind, pristine clarity of mind was not there, then nothing could arise. And we'd just be like this, couldn't we? No delusion, no unhappiness, no thoughts, just a clear blank slate. Wouldn't that be nice? That's what's implied here. That's called nihilism. That's what most people do when they meditate. Trying to have a blank slate. There would be no delusion, no wandering in samsara, no practice to apply. You wouldn't have to meditate, right? No thoughts. Therefore, no delusions, no karmic formations, no activity. That's what the Buddha practiced, by the way. Before he became a Buddha, he studied under some of the greatest masters of his time. And guess what he could do for one week? He could enter a meditative concentration where there was no thought and bliss, ordinary bliss, happy, no thought, for up to a week without, without a break. Guess what he discovered? It's not liberation. It's not liberation. There'd be no practitioner, by the way. Would there? 
If you have no thoughts, there's no thought about you. So therefore, you get rid of you. That'd be nice, wouldn't it? Then you don't have to deal with you. And there would be no result to the practice, because if you're not thinking, and there's no knowing of the thinking, then you wouldn't even have a practice. So there's no practitioner, and there's no meditation. That sounds pretty high, doesn't it? which unavoidably leads to falling into the extreme of blank void nihilism. In other words, what you've done is you've taken away a live human being. For what? A dead piece of flesh sitting there in a meditation posture, getting rid of itself. It gets rid of itself, it gets rid of all knowing. You wouldn't even make coffee, would you? You wouldn't even be, you wouldn't even be interested in having a coffee. You would just be. Well, you wouldn't want to produce anything because if you produce something, then you'd have to deal with it, wouldn't you? I mean, if you go down into downtown Queenstown, you might see something that would trigger a thought. And if it triggers a thought, there might be a resultant, which is you have to deal with an emotion. But if you keep the mind blank, then you don't have to deal with anything, right? Not even you. This is calling, this is, he says, is leading, leads into falling into extreme of the blank void of nihilism. This is not liberation. It's called cessation. You've now dried up all thoughts so that nothing can get produced and you don't have to deal with anything. It is for this reason that how to apply this cognizant quality, this awake quality, in one's experience it's explained in all the practices of the higher and lower vehicles, the paths, and particularly in the context of meditation practice. In other words, if you don't know how to spot the wakeful mind, you'll go into stopping mind. Does that make sense? And people call that meditation. Why? Because it's cool. You'll get bliss, you'll get no thought, and you'll feel an empty quality about everything. And you'll have a look on your face like this. Or like this. But it feels really good. But what happens when the jackhammer starts outside where you're meditating? Because it disturbs it. Now, if you're a really good meditator, even with a jackhammer beside you, it won't disturb. But you'll still have to sustain it. Because when you come out of meditation, you're going to have to deal with it. So what they're saying here is that it's, it's how to apply. Listen to the words very carefully. You've got the text in front of you? How to apply. How to apply this wakeful quality in one's experience, not the experience. Does it make sense? Not the experience. That is why we have these instructions. Now we'll go on further. Furthermore, some meditators these days... I love the way he says, all his texts have these little side comments. Then there's some, I love some of his texts, then there's some lamas that give empowerments for money. He goes on and on and on. They're going to end up in hell. (laughs) You know, these people that put on big productions for money, uh, lamas that teach but don't have any realization, all these kinds of things. He's quite quite, uh, strong about that. By the way, this is the 16th century, 16th, 17th century. He's complaining. 
right, left, and center. You read his writings going, oh my God, things got bad. But here we go. Here's another one. Further, some meditators these days, having not been accepted by a qualified master, and thus never having received genuine instructions. Now, what does he mean by genuine instructions? Genuine instructions are liberating instructions. That is how to apply the mind, not meditation. You need to learn meditation, but you need to know why meditation. And maybe not just once. Maybe a hundred thousand times you need to hear it. Over and over and over until the penny drops. I like that expression, eh? The penny drops? Where does that come from? The penny drops. Ending machine. Ending machine, right. And it sounds like that, doesn't it? <laughs> Clunk. <laughs> we'll look it up sometime. Yeah. Musical boxes, penny drops? Ah, great. Look it up. Furthermore, some meditators these days, having not been accepted by a qualified master, and thus never having received genuine instructions, believe that the manifestation of the cognizant quality of their mind, that is the wakeful, brilliant, natural, wakeful quality of their mind, is not meditation practice, and try forcibly to suppress it into what? A blank slate. Isn't that right? If I can just get rid of those thoughts, if I can just get rid of that nasty self, if I can just suppress all those emotions, if I can sit in a posture that that leads me to be in a blank state, I'll get it. He's saying exactly the opposite, isn't he? They believe that the manifestation of the cognizant quality of their mind is not meditation practice and try forcibly to suppress it. Now, he's talking about what? Wakeful quality of mind. What would you call the wakeful quality of mind? It can be a thought. Thoughts awareness, isn't it? An emotions awareness, isn't it? No thoughts awareness. Thus there, quote, I'll continue on. Thus, there are many people who assume that meditation is nothing other than a non-conceptual state, no thinking. No meditator, no meditation, no thoughts, no emotions, no self-referencing, no judgment, no discrimination, no intellect. What do you have? A brass Buddha. Nothing other than a non-conceptual state. And we'll continue on with uh, Steely Rangdahl's um, beautiful writings here. Having made such an assumption, their meditation turns into a samatha, stupor, and never becomes Mahamudra or Zogchen. In other words, becomes, samatha is a word for tranquility. becomes a tranquility meditation. It's not liberating. It's not liberating. And never becomes Mahamudra, which is the great seal, or Zogchen, the great perfection. This is definitely not the path of enlightenment. He's being, isn't he being quite bold and straightforward? He's not messing around saying, this is definitely not the path of enlightenment. But it's very easy 
since we're wired, we now know that human beings are wired for addiction. They're wired. We love pleasure. We'll do anything for pleasure. We'll even murder for pleasure. Hmm? We'll murder for happiness. There might even be strange, weird people that might even steal a bag of potato chips to get that special feeling. Okay? Especially the perfect combination of fat, sugar, and salt, which hits the brain in a certain way that you go, more, 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 more. Hmm? Ever seen a graph of that? Yeah, there's a graph. It's been worked out in General Mills or Kellogg's laboratories. It's a, quite a graph. It shows the perfect harmony of fat, sugar, and salt that you bring together in a potato chip or a, uh, um, a Starbucks coffee, uh, those kinds of things, that hits the brain and activates that perfect bliss point. They call it the bliss point, by the way. And you, you go back for more and more and more. Or pizza. Pizza, pizza. pizza is a perfect combination. Salty, fat, carbohydrates, and full of sugar buried in the dough. Just fantastic. There you go. Ah, okay. So why would you want to do look at your wakefulness? When you're sitting there like this? Ever seen a room full of people like that? You can see these photographs. They're, on, they're sort of on the, on the internet. A whole row of people. It's good. They're meditating. I don't have a problem with that. But are they becoming awake? Compassion. Perhaps. That's not for me to judge that. Is it? No. The question is, we're here. What are we doing with this precious mind? It's very easy to be seduced into what? God, I feel good. Remember last week in that meditation, I just felt so good? This is called the bliss point. Last week in that meditation, we were sitting here in the room, and boy, that felt so good for like five, ten minutes. I'm going to do that again. I know it's a special breathing technique. I know it's, if I do this, there it is. How many times are you going to do that? Over and over and over again. It's like having a pizza. Remember that pizza I had last week? God, it was perfect. And you go and you, you have it and you go, no. But then the next week you go, oh yeah, this is incredible. Ever had that? The perfect coffee where you go, or the tea and you go, oh my God. Oh my God. It's, an o, it's an OMG. It's an OMG. And then you try to reproduce it. And then it's not. And then you spend a whole week trying to reproduce it. There it is. <laughs> like the golf shot. That perfect golf shot. And you go, I can do that again. Well, sometimes you can, sometimes you can. That's not the point. It doesn't lead to liberation. That's what he's saying. That doesn't lead to liberation. What leads to liberation? That which is already naturally blissfully awake and free of all contrivance. That's called cognizance. We all have it. But the bliss, the ordinary bliss gets in the way. That naturally awake cognizance is called what? Great bliss. Why? It never goes away. It doesn't mean if you it doesn't if you're happy, it's there. If you're sad, it's there. If you're full of anxiety, it's there. 
If you're running, it's there. If you're sitting, it's there. If you're peeing, it's there. If you had too many coffees, it's still there. If you're sleeping, it's still there. It's not something you have to produce, it's just something you have to find. Does that make sense? That's what he's calling meditation. It's called in, in meditation, gom. Gom. Or Mahamudra or Zogchen. This is definitely not the path of enlightenment. And he continues, in the end, upon realizing the fruition, the fruition of the path, it becomes apparent that all the qualities of knowledge, loving kindness, enlightened deeds, compassion, and so forth, are the power and effect of this cognizance as well. So another way of saying this, just we'll just use some logic, is that compassion turns out to be this cognizance. That in that cognizance is compassion. But without the cognizance, the awareness of this awakeness, there can be no compassion. There can be good deeds. So if cognizance is inhibited now, at the time of the path, now what this means, let's read this very carefully. He's, he's making a very important point. Why we study Dharma and why we train. Why? So if ca- wakefulness, the importance of wakefulness, is inhibited, is blocked, now at the time of the path of practice, before realization, how can the knowledge and compassion and so on, all the good qualities, manifest later at the time of fruition? Now, this is a very important point. If you, blessed you, or me, because my teacher bawled me out for this one time when I was about 20 years old, if you become enlightened by discovering the nature of mind, but have not developed the qualities of discernment about its nature, and the qualities of compassion, loving kindness, and all the qualities one needs, you're in trouble. Because you will be free. But you won't have the compassion to free others. You won't know how you got there. And all these good qualities won't manifest. But your mind will be able to reside naturally in this wakeful quality. And guess what's going to happen? Someone will come up to you and say, could you teach me? I'll go, yes. Just do this. It's easy, isn't it? We don't call that compassion. So if cognizance, wakefulness, is inhibited now, that is not knowing the real nature of wakefulness through meditation, and direct pointing out, at the time of the path, uh, time of practice, how can the knowledge and compassion and so on manifest later at the time of fruition? It won't manifest into its glory. Let me give you a, a metaphor for this. It would be like putting a seed in the ground and the plant grows 
And the plant is a beautiful plant, but it only has one pollen. That's it. Instead of 20 or 30,000 million pollen to fertilize all these plants, it only has one pollen. It's lacking the power and majesty of the awake mind. Does it make sense? Lacking the power and majesty. Consequently, these are the reasons why taking cognizance as the path is the root of practice. Why? And the other reason is, it's definitive. From, from years and years, centuries of experience, is the mind will stray into nihilism, into emptiness, not into compassion. This is definitive. This has been experienced over and over again. The mind will stray into, into emptiness, teaching emptiness, and not teaching the strength of compassion. Okay? So consequently, these are the reasons why taking wakefulness, not... Now, if you read this word cognizance and wakefulness and not understand its meaning, you'll think, ah, empty mind. Wakeful, empty mind. But it's not the qualities of empty, wakeful mind. What are the qualities of empty, wakeful mind? What's the radiance of the mind? Now let's take a look at this tonka. This, you see the, the painting on the wall behind the Buddha figure? How many arms does it have? A thousand arms. Why would you need a thousand arms when you could just have two? And what do the thousand arms have? They have eyes in them, which are wisdom eyes. And why eleven heads? Isn't that silly? Eleven heads when you just have one? And a thousand arms? Why? The full manifestation of awake compassion. Full cognizance. The full display. Like in the library there, there's a beautiful um, painting on the wall of a Buddha figure sitting there with rainbow light coming out of its heart. Have you seen that? Beautiful picture. That's the full display of wakefulness in all of its manifest glory for the sake of other beings. So he's saying it's very easy to stray into what? An empty, lucid mind not realizing its full nature, its full, its full majesty, what it can do. Let me read this beautiful. This is a, a couple paragraphs from Jean Control, great 19th century uh, teacher and meditation master uh, on compassion. This is in the text called The Treasury of Knowledge, his vast uh, compendium called The Treasury of Knowledge, Elements of Tantric Practice. Compassion. And here's his pith, his pith statement. This is, a, this is a commentary on his root text that he wrote. So he took his root text that he wrote to his master, Kenzei Wangpo. His master said, this is brilliant. Now go write a commentary so people can understand what you wrote. <laughs> this, is, this is a commentary on what he wrote. So out of the line from his pith text, it says, compassion means the uncommon bliss which does not change. This is his definition of compassion. 
Compassion means the uncommon bliss which does not change. Have you ever heard compassion described that way? Never. We're talking about a a greatly enlightened master. So his teacher says, I think you should explain this. Look at this. Root text is only like three pages long. I read in in his autobiography where he goes to his teacher and his teacher says, I think it would be good if he wrote something on this. Uh, The compassion being discussed is significantly different from ordinary compassion and even great compassion, as well that termed awakened compassion, which is Mahayana, called Mahayana compassion, as generally spoken of in the common ways to realization. In addition, this is the mantra way. There is a threefold distinction set forth in uh, Vitapa's sevenfold yoga in terms of levels of individuals. The compassion of a beginner, the compassion of a bodhisattva who has achieved a stage of realization, and the compassion of a Buddha. So three different stages. The beginner, the bodhisattva, and a Buddha. So the question is, are we practicing to be, become a beginner? Are we practicing into, to have fruition as a bodhisattva? Or are we practicing to be fully realized? Which one do you want? This would be like practicing to be a neurosurgeon and say, we're going to give you half the certificate. That means you can tie off the veins when you close up 50%. Would you like that? That means, for instance, if you take out a tumor from the brain, you're able to get half of it. Which one would you want to train in? Make any sense? When taught from a general perspective, those are called compassion alone, comparable to calling the common emptiness, emptiness alone. What is meant is that unlike the compassion of union with emptiness, this common compassion by itself, even if one had cultivated continuously for an entirety of an eon, I think an eon is about, what, 10 billion years, something like that, or 20 billion years, I think would not enable one to cross over cyclic existence. means full liberation. No, no full liberation. Compassion alone therefore falls in the side of eternalism and hence is term, termed eternalism alone. And he quotes Saraha, a great Indian master, one may have thoroughly familiarized with compassion alone, but still remain in the cycle without transcending suffering. So in other words, uh, compassion alone does not transcend suffering. It just doesn't do it. It doesn't liberate beings. But it's good. We need it. That being the case, in a context such as the completion phase, this type of yoga, which is based on the swift path of mantra, what is called, quote, compassion that is the root of method should not be taken to mean compassion alone. In other words, don't mistake these special means as ordinary compassion or compassion even unified with emptiness alone. The root of method compassion is considered to be primarily what is known as the compassion of union with emptiness. This union compassion should be applied as yoga in the path of uncommon emptiness whose essence is compassion. Now there it is. Whose essence is compassion. So you have to find out what the essence of compassion is. 
What's the essence of compassion? That wakeful mind. Don't take away the beauty of the wakeful mind. Otherwise you get what? Stoppage, cessation. The actual basis of the characteristics of that compassion of union, union with emptiness, is the uncommon, changeless, great bliss. That is to say, self-cognizant dimension of ineffable, great bliss, pristine awareness. It's ineffable. Can't even be described. Self-aware mind. Pristine. Which is the ultimate dimension of phenomena. Did he say you? No. The ultimate dimension of phenomena. He didn't say you. He didn't say enlightenment. He said the ultimate dimension of every single thing in this universe. Unchanging by nature, united as a single essence. Isn't that something? This is the universe. So it's not about us. It's about comprehending the universe in its essence. That's liberation. This is very high teaching. So if it's mysterious to you, that's fine. The great bliss overcomes the suffering of oneself and others. It is therefore great compassion, since to fully protect all suffering beings, the characteristic that defines this is the characteristic that defines great passion. Got great compassion. What's great compassion? Protecting beings from what? Suffering, Suffering harm, harm themselves in a state of delusion. Beautiful, isn't it? Guess what that turns out to be? The great bliss. So if you're looking for a great bliss in yourself, you're not going to find it. What is the great bliss? Compassion for all beings, knowing the root of suffering. And what was it turned out? What do we find in this text? Where's the root of suffering? Not recognizing the awake mind. It's straightforward, isn't it? Not recognizing the, the awake mind is what causes suffering. It's called grasping. Grasping to objects. How do you free a being of that? You have to realize the wakeful mind. That turns out to be the great bliss. Compassion is the great bliss. So in Tantra, the, 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 the bliss is not taught as a physical thing so much as what? Compassion. Do you want to know how to be blissful? Practice great compassion. It's not going to come out of emptiness. Although, that helps. Although that is so, bliss is taught as compassion not because it simply fits the entomology of the word compassion. There's a connection between the word, the word compassion and bliss. But because bliss manifests with an aspect. Now we're gonna, this is going to sound very Christian to you. Right? Because bliss manifests with an aspect or mode of apprehension of supremely great love for all beings without exception. Isn't that something? He just just said what it is. I'll read that again. 
But because bliss manifests with an aspect, bliss doesn't manifest as a physical thing that you get off on. Oh, I can't wait to get back into that meditation zone of bliss. It manifests with an aspect or mode of apprehension of supremely great love for all beings without exception. Great bliss has no point of reference since all dualistic experience has ceased and the seal of ineffable is never transcended. It's ineffable. It's beyond all comprehension. Thus it is called compassion without a point of reference. That's called great bliss. Moreover, even the bliss experienced with an action seal, that's with a consort, is a manifestation of compassion. So do you see how deep the, 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 the clinging is? See how deep the clinging is? How deep the clinging is will be to what? Bliss. The bliss point. So once you have the bliss point, you have to give up the bliss point for what? Love of all sentient beings. Why? Why would you love all sentient beings? Because you just love them? No, because you know the delusion that's arising. Your heart goes out because this is a fabricated delusion and there can be an end to it. It's not necessary. Make sense? And how do you know that? Through the realization of this awake mind. Many people will teach this as what? Realizing the nature of emptiness. But actually, the twist on this is realizing the nature of not emptiness as is normally conceived, but as a naturally awake mind, which is the root of all beings' minds. And that's called great compassion. It's great compassion. Now, how do we take... How do we take cognizance, this awake, natural compassion, as the path? No matter what, now now here's the meditation instructions. Ready? Here's the meditation instructions. No matter what thought you have or what perception occurs, don't grasp it as being solid and don't follow after it. That means don't make it blank. Don't try to muscle it down. Don't try to stop it. You know that. It's just going to come back, isn't it? Don't follow after it. Don't try to block it. And don't, try, don't attempt to do anything else, such as using a remedy or change of focus. Why? Because there's nothing you can do with this awakeness. It's unchanging great bliss. It has its own nature. So what do we do with almost everything, especially guys? What do guys do? You know, women always accuse guys of this. We're always trying to fix things, right? You're not going to fix it. There's nothing to fix. Isn't that what we always do with ourselves in the spiritual life? We're going to go fix something? Well, why would you fix the awake mind? Because you feel uncomfortable, correct? Isn't that right? If you feel uncomfortable, then you go and you see, seek an antidote. Isn't that, right? Isn't that right? If you have a headache, and the headache lasts for a long time, what would you do? 
you take aspirin or Advil. Wouldn't you? Makes sense. But we know with our emotional states that even if we keep changing our emotional states, we still have them. So then we try to do what? What's the common way in which we try to deal with our, our flooding emotions? We try to do away with them, isn't it? And how do we do that? Well, we just go like this. Perfect. God, that feels good. But then we have to deal with them again. So it's not going to work. And yet, if we don't have a clear, steady mind that's well-trained in this, how are we going to look at the mind? Did you see the conundrum? So someone comes along and says, you don't really need to do, do anything at all. You don't, need to, is there, you don't need to do anything. You just need to be in a natural mode and just be like this. And just look at the mind. But if the mind is so ruffled and turbulent, how are you going to do it? You can't. You're going to be making it up conceptually. Oh yeah, there's the awake mind. It's empty. It's just vivid awareness. You know, so you see, you see students come up to you, meditation, meditation, so how is your mind? It's vivid awareness. They just read that in the text. Vivid awareness. Vivid what? And the next day, oh, it's just thick and sloppy. Okay. What's your mind? Oh, it's clear. But you see, then they cling to the clear clarity. The thing. And don't attempt to do anything else such as using a remedy or change of focus. Simply recognize natural awareness, rangrig, and let the thought or perception dissipate on its own. Leave it be, let it go where it wants. Why? What's the thought? What's the thought? It's that cognizant, bright, clear, free awareness. But what happens when you have a thought? The habit pattern says, ugh, or wow. So what's bliss? It's simply a thought. What's not bliss? Simply a thought. What's meditation? A thought. What's a meditator? A thought. What's being happy? Thinking you're happy. What's sad? Thinking you're sad. What's behind it all? Now, did you hear the essence? What's behind all that stuff? How many meditative experiences are you going to collect until you get bored? How many shows of light and, and um, big trumpet sounds and the big stuff are you going to have until you get bored out of your mind and go... We're wired for it. That's why it's so hard. Do you know the hardest thing is not the difficult emotions in meditation? What do you think the hardest part for a teacher is? What do you think the hardest part for a teacher is in teaching? Dealing with the bliss. The addiction of the bliss. That's the hardest part. Not, not the difficult stuff. Guaranteed. Students will fight you tooth and nail over the bliss. They'll yell at you. They'll scream at you. They'll disagree with you. Because you're saying... I don't care if you're having bliss. Oh, but that's it. I had this light yesterday, and, and then it was just, you know, you go, oh, that's good. Great. No, no, no. It was really good. I was so happy. 
And my mind was thought free for hours. So, so what? Um, chickens can do that? <laughs> Pig, we can train pigs to do that? Monkeys can do that? It's okay. But have you recognized the natural, innate freedom of that bliss? That's harder. Why? We don't want to look at it. Why don't we want to look at it? Because it feels so darn good to just go like this. Simply, is it so simple? No. Why is it not so simple? You know know that, don't you? You read here and he's, he's saying, from his perspective, right? As a great meditation master, he's saying, simply recognize natural awareness. And you're going... I can feel it. You're going, nah, it's not so simple, is it? It's not so simple. Why? Merit. Why do we train? Merit. Merit. Even if we're fortunate enough, when we start meditating or before we meditate, to have an experience of this natural, unchanging awareness, the chances are we don't even know what it was. We're going to spend... 10, 15, 20 years training to do what? To recognize it. It's that simple. You know, there's a story of of one of the um, grandfathers way, way back of um, Turkan Olku Rinpoche, one of the great great masters that passed away this this century. Great meditation master. And he tells the story of one of his relatives, oh, 1905 or 18-something, the whole family of yogis, and his, I think his, 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 um, his uncle, his uncle, uncle Samton was called. And Uncle Samton was this great reincarnated young man, um, born to a great family of yogis, and he's in his monastery, he's a monk, and he's, in his, he's like eight years old, and um, very high incarnate lama. And he's supposed to be, according to the story, a bit um, arrogant, a bit naughty, basically a troublesome lad, but he's highly recognized and he's supposed to be given great honor. Anyways, one day there's this old monk, this no-name old monk shows up to sweep the floor. And he's sweeping the floor and there's this young man, Samton, standing there doing something. And the old monk, who nobody knows, just this old monk, says to this great incarnate young man says, would you just smarten up? Would you act like the way you're supposed to be? Would you just kind of like get it? The kid goes, who, like, who are you? And the old man, I'm, I'm paraphrasing because I don't know the exact words of the story, but it's something like this. And the old man says, why do you look at your mind? It's your mind. Go look at your mind. He's telling him to go wake up, kid. So, this young man goes, okay. Boom. Becomes enlightened. Just like that. It's called training, previous training. Called merit, by the way. A lot of merit. And guess what Uncle Samton said for years after that? He says, my mind never changed. And if you want to study meditation, go somebody, somebody else. <laughs> I can't teach you how to meditate. <laughs> he was a master of masters. He would teach the masters how to, you know. But he couldn't teach ordinary beings. Just that one statement. Look at your mind. He looked at his mind and went, oh my God. Boom. That was it. He said, from that point on, 
It never varied. Just a wake mind. Never married. Amazing, yeah? Leave it be. Let it go where it wants. What are you scared of? Let it go. What do you think is going to happen? If all your thoughts rumble along and the emotions, what's going to happen? What's the worst that could happen? You'll think you're going to lose your mind, yes? Lose control. Or are you going to have to give up control? Have to give it up. Maybe that's what the problem is. Wrenched control. What happened when you did that little experiment this morning of turning the head? What do you think happened? Why do you think your mind felt so clear? Relaxed. Let go. Let go. Leave it be. So when we talk about Mahamudra Zogchen, they often use a word called relaxation. Full, total relaxation of mind. Let it be. But you're going to have to train to let it be. You're going to have to train. Like a cello player that lets, its wrist, lets their wrist relax so well that they can produce a really good sound. A trumpet player that can let their lips relax and their body relax that they can produce a beautiful, clear note. Not through tension. Through what? Letting go with awareness. Simply recognize natural awareness and let the thought or perception dissipate on its own. That means you have to trust the wisdom mind, the intelligence of mind, to liberate mind. But do you trust it? That's the dividing line. If you want to know where the dividing line of practitioners is, is they trust, eventually, they trust the wisdom mind. That's what you've got to find. Do you trust your own wisdom mind, or are you scared of it? If I don't practice and don't muscle down the consciousness, it'll be bad. No. Let it be. So how many people here have experienced clear, lucid, just natural mind? You have. Just, just natural. Yeah. Were you muscling it down? No. You're probably doing nothing more than just being at the time, yes? That's the secret. But you're going to have to train to do that. Otherwise, you're going to have to wait 15 years for it to happen again. That's the dilemma. When you, and you have to trust that. When you don't stray from this fresh, ordinary mind, this fresh, ordinary mind, how many beings this morning walked in this room, this morning, and felt it absolutely fresh and new as if they've never been in here before? Good. Every moment is fresh. Never repeat it ever again. You never walk along the same path. Queenstown will never be the same from one moment ever again. One's experience, one's awareness, is, one's uh, experience is ever fresh, every more, every single moment. When you don't stray from this fresh, ordinary mind, why does they say ordinary? Because it's actually your mind. Not the pretend mind, 
not the conditioned mind, not the layered mind of concepts and learned behavior, things we learned. No, it's the natural mind. And you've all experienced the natural mind, by the way. Every night when you fall asleep, it comes up. Every time when you wake up in the morning, it's there. Every moment when you look fresh at somebody or an object, it's actually there for a few milliseconds, and then it's gone. Can you feel it right now? It's absolutely fresh. When you don't stray from this fresh, ordinary mind, no matter what takes place, now we need merit. Sitting there in retreat, your nice, cozy house, and you're sitting there and you're looking at this fresh, awake mind, and then you remember that you've got some haagen ice cream in the freezer. And you go, you know, I think that's better than the awake mind. I think I'll just... Eat a whole tub. Okay, that's when you lose it. Then simply to avoid fixating on good and bad, doesn't matter what happens, accepting and rejecting, is itself sufficient. Somehow there's something I need to do more than this ever fresh, wakeful, compassionate mind. Isn't that amazing? You know, there's got to be another meditation. There's got to be something more than remaining and dwelling in this wakefulness. Isn't that true? Could you just give me a a secret teaching? That is the practice of self-cognizant natural awareness. Beautiful. That is the practice of self-cognizant natural awareness, not artificial awareness. Absolutely natural. It has a glow that never comes and never goes. It's not produced by meditation. It doesn't vanish when the meditation session finishes. It doesn't come up when you have a really good coffee. It doesn't go away when you have a really nasty coffee. It doesn't come up when you're in a beautiful garden. It doesn't go away when the, 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 the roses are wilted. Does it? It's just present. That within you that merely knows, collects or notices is called mindfulness, self-awareness, contemplation, or insight. So let's be very careful about this. The word recollection, the word mindfulness, today they've been changed into something different. These are technical meanings. When they mean mindfulness, they don't mean being aware moment to moment. They mean being aware of that self-cognizant, awake, natural presence. That's different. Does it make sense? Mindfulness, as we use it today, is the training to be in a place to look at mind. It's used differently here. That within you, you're not going to find it without you, that within you that merely knows it knows exactly what's going on. Do you ever feel that sometimes? There's something in you that knows exactly what this is all about. That's who I'm talking to right now. I don't need to talk to you. If you want to know how I can speed this up and what makes it easy for me these days, is I don't really need to talk to you. I just need to address that 
wisdom mind. It already knows what this is about. That's all. All the rest is superfluous. All the rest is about merit. If I have to talk to you, it's about merit. If I need to talk to your wisdom mind, then I can, I can go around all that other stuff. Because you already know. Like, I know that. And some of you already know that. And some of you will discover that, that actually we could talk about your problems, but that wisdom mind doesn't have any problems. It already knows what you need to do because it's already experienced it. The question is, are you going to have confidence to develop it? That's all. Isn't that fun? It's pretty cool, isn't it? If I give you a hard time over something, personally, that's to do with merit. But if it's a Dharma class, I might still give you a hard time. But actually, you already know. You don't necessarily know what to do, but the wakeful mind already knows what wakefulness is. All we need to do is bring the awareness back home over and over and over again until you get confidence. That is the practice of self-cognitive natural awareness. That within you that merely knows, recollects, recollects the awake state, or notices the awake state, is called mindfulness. This term mindfulness is, is being used differently here, technically differently than most other traditions. What they mean by mindfulness is not mindfulness of sensation, not mindfulness of any object of mind. What they mean is mindfulness of the original, natural, awake state. That's what they mean. Okay? It's called insight. Not as generally used. All the different Dharma systems agree that it is suffi- all the different Dharma systems of Vajrayana agree that it's sufficient to practice just like this as the meditation. So, another way of saying this is this is the meditation. Among these beings, that's what they call meditation. All the meditation that we do, we commonly call meditation, is to get to the point where we become confident in this. Does this make sense to you? All this training, Chenrezig, Vajrasattva, Medicine Buddha, foundation practices, loving-kindness practices, breath meditation is for what? to build enough strength to be able to dwell consistently, easily, naturally in what? The natural, ever-fresh, awake mind of compassion. That's it. That's it. No matter what kind of seemingly more superior meditation state you may achieve, this is where the students give me a hard time. Okay? Is the toughest part teaching. As a as a retreat, as a retreat master is very tough. No matter what kind of seemingly more superior meditation state you may achieve, and there's lots of them, <laughs> such as stillness or bliss, clarity or non-thought, it is nothing but a fabrication. No matter how high the meditation experience is, it's simply still an experience. And you'll argue until the cows come home. 
That's another expression. <laughs> Until a penny drops. But, 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 but yesterday, last night, I had Guru Rinpoche talking to me directly. It was amazing. Good. What's the, way, what's the self-aware, cognizant, natural state? I don't know. But it was Guru Rinpoche in all his majesty. If it was Guru Rinpoche in all of his majesty, it would be the self-aware natural state, guaranteed. What's the mind like when it's flooded with light? Not the light, the mind. We don't care about the light. We care about the mind. What's the mind like? Can you describe it? Oh no, but there was lots of light. I don't care about lots of light. What's that mind like? And then when you come, when you come to the retreat teacher and you go, oh man, I had the most horrible day. My mind was just like sludge. I felt awful, icky, gooey. I just couldn't concentrate. What's the mind like? No, no, but I was, it was just really uncomfortable. What's the mind like? We don't care. Yeah, but, but I was having some emotional upsets. What's the mind like? Do you see? The addiction to the good, the addiction to the bad. The addiction to the good meditation, the addiction to the, mad, the bad meditation. Right now, there's a wake mind. doesn't matter how you're feeling. doesn't matter what I say. That's what you need to spot. Just like being on safari. Ever been on safari? I use this example lots. So I'll get another example someday. Maybe I'll be on another safari someday. But once being on safari in, um, in Zimbabwe, I can just hear, you can hear the, the, the bridge. And once on safari in Zimbabwe, <laughs> we were with our guide. And here we were, it's morning, and the guide was saying, we were in, the, we were in a field, the, the, the uh, truck had stopped in the field, and we have our binoculars out, and he's saying, over there by the forest is a whole line of zebras. <laughs> zebras? Yep, right there. Zebras. Can't see them. There's Rinpoche and Terry and Bath and myself. And then finds this. Look, just look. Right there. Right there. Oh my God. A whole line of zebras. Now, is that the point? It's good. But how about looking at the looking? That's more important. Are you aware of the cognizance of seeing the zebras, not the zebras? You see the difference? You experience that naturally awake, vivid, compassionate, open, natural mind in the recognition moment. Oh. And it's always there. It never goes away. It is sufficient to practice just like this. No matter what kind of seemingly more superior meditation state you may achieve, such as stillness or bliss, clarity or non-thought, it is nothing but fabrication. So this gives you a clue. Do you know we all have BS detectors? You know what I mean by BS. Do you all know what I mean by BS? BS? Bullshit. Okay. We all have bullshit detectors. Now it's a meter. It's like a meter. It goes, like a Geiger counter. 
The word fabrication should give you a clue. Whenever there's fabrication, let the BS meter rise high. Yes? So that's the kind of meter you need to develop, which is working with the teacher to get the BS meter up really high. Not natural. Not natural. Not natural. And then there's a point. Ah. And sometimes when you go to your teacher, it may not be like making a statement. It's just, there you go, there you go, and that's about it. Because really, there's not a whole lot you can say. Sometimes there is. Sometimes there isn't. But it's not the point. The BS meter just is at zero. Mm-hmm. So, how was your drive yesterday? Good, now we're talking. How was your cup of tea yesterday? Now we're talking. Well, yesterday I had this most amazing experience of bliss. How was your cup of tea? If you don't get the bliss, by the way, then the mind won't settle. And if the mind doesn't settle, you're not going to look. So teachers want to know if you're having bliss. Why? Because they want to know if your mind is clear enough to look. If you don't feel happy, you don't look. If you feel upset all the time, then you're not comfortable in your own being. So that's not very good meditation, is it? Make sense? So first of all, you have to get comfortable in your being. Then we have to wake it up. (coughs) Fabrication. Remember that word. Fabrication. Construction. Something built. We want to unbuild. What do we know about the world? What do we know about the world? 99% of it we purchased. The spiritual path is, is learning, but it's going to be unfabrication, which means every single thing you learn You're going to have to empty it out. Why? It's just in the way. But if you don't learn, you don't study, you don't have confidence. So the entire teaching of Dharma is building confidence by logical, unmistakable meaning that this is good. But you're going to have to let everything go. Why? Because it's actually blocking natural cognizance. Consequently, it is not uncreated, unfabricated, ordinary mind, hence not a flawless meditation. So in other words, if you're residing in bliss and you're looking at clarity and you're dealing with non-thought and you're feeling like you're in an empty state, then he's saying it's not uncreated, it's not unfabricated, ordinary mind, Hence, it's not a flawless meditation. Does this make sense? So you look for the flawless. You look for the gem. It's absolutely natural. Do you know how hard it is now to find a quartz crystal that hasn't been touched up? Do you have any idea how hard it is to actually find a quartz crystal where someone hasn't gone along and touched up a side or a crystal face? 
to make it look flatter or brighter. I can go through sometimes 30 or 40 of them. Oh, there it is. Someone touched it up. How do you know? This, is, this to me, is a very good metaphor for this. How do you know a crystal face has been touched up? A crystal face that's been touched up has a curvature to it, no matter what machine it is. Even a good fasting machine that's a flat plate is going to have a slight quality to it that gives an artificiality to it. Whereas a natural crystal face has little tiny bumps on it. It has a certain property of flatness and bumps on it that gives it away. and has a sharpness to it that, that is very difficult to do even with a fasting machine. It's that kind of level of discrimination. No fabrication. No attempt to modify. No attempt to even add a drop of bliss. No attempt to make it clearer than it already is. Do you see the, do you see the habituation? I, it must be clearer. It must be more blissful. If you're not getting bliss in meditation, what are you going to do? Well, I'm not feeling like I did last week. Oh, man, I just want to feel so good. not the point. Consequently, it is not uncreated, unfabricated, ordinary mind, and hence not a flawless meditation. Therefore, you must gain a positive certainty about this point. How are you going to gain a positive certainty about what is flawless meditation? Do you think you're going to do it? You're going to tell yourself it's flawless? Occasionally. That's where the teacher comes in. The teacher's there to help you point out what is flawless and what's not flawless. Because they usually have good BS detectors. Please understand this. Therefore, you must gain a positive certainty about this point of the unfabricated. Please understand this. Beautiful, beautiful teaching. Now, what does this have to do with compassion? That is compassion. Compassion is removing all the traces to delusion about what is unfabricated. Unfabricated. It's uncommon teaching. Because normally when we talk about compassion, it's something that one needs to do. No. It's something that one needs to find. And you're not going to find it outside yourself. You're going to find it within yourself, but actually, there's not even a self to find it within yourself. But normally, what do we do? We look for it without ourselves. Right? But where is it? It's mind. It's just experience. What a beautiful text. Now, where does this take us? What's this about compassion, and why would we practice compassion? Because it's much bigger than we can even conceive. And you're, it's gonna be, you're, now you're thinking, I'm going to give you a quote, because people like quotes. builds confidence. Here's a quote from a great Dharma teacher, Albert Einstein. That's odd, eh? I'm going to finish a Dharma talk with a quote 
from Albert Einstein. How weird. You want to hear a quote from Albert Einstein? Fantastic. Quote, this would be actually a wonderful thing to print and put up on the wall somewhere. I'm not really keen on that sort of thing because as soon as I see them, take them down. But anyways, maybe for five minutes. Quote, a human being is part of the whole, which we call the universe. So this has been, have you, have you heard the language of meditation? It's about you liberating, right? Even though there's compassion used, it's all about liberating one's mind to realize the natural weakness. Correct? This can lead you to stray. Now listen to the vast view, the big view of compassion. A human being is part of the whole, which we call, quote, the universe. A part limited in time and space. He experiences himself, his thoughts and feelings as something separated from the rest, a kind of optical delusion of his consciousness. This is being written somewhere, I think, in the 1940s or 50s. It's quite something. A part limited in time and space, he experiences himself, his thoughts and feelings as something separated from the rest of the universe. A kind of optical delusion of his consciousness. This delusion is a kind of prison for us, restricting us to our personal desires and affection for a few persons nearest us. Our task must be to free ourselves from this prison by widening our circle of compassion to embrace all living creatures and the whole of nature in its astonishing beauty. Isn't that extraordinary? Does this sound like Jean Moncontrol? Yeah. Liberate the mind for what purpose? Compassion to to comprehend the astonishing beauty of the universe. That's called love. So it is, it is said. It is said in the old text, the time of the Buddha. Uh, maybe this isn't so true today. I think, but in his time, he said only an arhat, not a fully enlightened being, a fully emotionally purified being, can look at a piece of poo, piece of dung and see its beauty. Like a specialist of, you know, there's specialists that, uh, people that study elephant dung, the ecology of elephant dung. Can you imagine spending your life studying elephant dung? The ecology, yes, because they see it as beauty. It's amazing. What a world in there. This delusion is a kind of prison for us. That's where the compassion comes in restricting us to our personal desires and affection for a few persons nearest us. Remember your question about saying something to somebody? Remember that? That's exactly it. Do you have confidence in the essence, the nature of where this delusion stems from? If you do, your heart reaches out to beings and there's nothing that you can do but free them of delusion however you do it, because it's prison. It's killing beings. 
killing beings. So this teaching is not on about how long you live, is it? I'm not promising you that you're going to live till 90 years old. I can't tell when you're going to die. I don't know when I'm going to die. It's not about longevity. It's about a good life of being human. Our task must be to free ourselves from this prison by widening our circle of compassion to embrace all living creatures, even amoebas, even bacteria, and the whole of nature in its astonishing beauty, in its wonderment. Hmm? Otherwise, you don't have compassion. This universe is gob-smacking extraordinary. Look at a leaf and you'll be shocked by what you find out in a leaf. Not just a human. A being that becomes more free, oddly enough, is much more interested not just in human beings, but everything. Everything. Why? Because it's not just about humans. And where I started on Friday is, you're not human. Do you know that? You should have compassion for the bacteria in your guts. There's more of them than you. They live inside you. They'd like to be happy. You can help them be happy by being happy. Then they'll help you to be happy. They might even send you messages every once in a while, like things like, could you please eat now? We'd like to be fed. Could you please stop feeding us? Now, by the way, this is neither here nor there. Could you please stop feeding us all that milk? We are lactose intolerant. Could you please alter your diet? Could we, We'd like some more uh, protein. Could you please stop having three glasses of wine, maybe just half a glass of wine? Why? Because we feel better down there. Because we bacteria turn out to be who? You. Isn't that weird? Now, I heard a story this, mo- this morning. Was it auntie or grandmother Nati or Nat? Na- na- oh, grandma. Grandma. Which grandma? My grandma. Yeah, wh- what's her name? Nana. Nana. Okay, <laughs> Nana. Now, <laughs> Grandma Nana was told that her lungs were connected to her heart, yes? And she was shocked. Now, what was she, 90 years old or 88 years old? 86. 86 years old. She was shocked when her, was her doctor told her that her heart was connected to her lungs. Isn't that amazing? I know people who, when I say, point to your brain. Go, go ahead and point to your brain. Can you see your brain? What part of your body can you see your brain? What part of your body can you look at? Just look around the room at people. Not the wall, but look at people and look at their brain. Tell me what they're looking at when, you, when you're looking at the brain. Where? where? Isn't that a, Now, some of you are looking absolutely bewildered. Look at someone's brain. Just turn to, your, just turn to the person sitting beside you and look at their brains. Can you do it? Now, these people who don't know because... It, can you do it? No, no, you're looking at their earlobe, right? That's not their brain. You're looking at their skin, correct? That's not their brain. 
Is there any separation between the eyeball and the brain? Take a look at someone's eyeball now. Take a look. What are you looking at? You're looking at the brain. But we don't normally call it brain because we differentiate say it's an eyeball. But actually an eyeball is a set of tissues directly connected to the brain. There's no separation. Is there any separation between the skin and the brain? None. Zero. None at all. Is there any separation from your cardiovascular system, all your veins, all your arteries, from your brain? None. Is your gut directly connected to every function of your brain? Yes. This isn't make-believe. This isn't New Age science. This is real science. Do you ever have a thought that doesn't affect every single part of your body? No. What are those 100 trillion bacteria, 30 or 40 trillion protozoa, something like a billion trillion viruses, are they separate from you? No, we know that now. That's scientific fact. They're not separate. How about the trees? No. How about the rocks? No. How about the chair you're sitting on? Is it separate from you? Would you say there's any separation between the floor and the chair that you're sitting on? No. Oh, the, the, the clothing's in the way. Do you see how foolish this is? So what's the extent of the awake mind? What's the extent of the awake mind? You? There isn't any. What's you? The whole astonishing universe. Do you see where this is going? This is for real. This isn't make-believe. What's you? The whole astonishing awake universe. Go look at a leaf when you leave here and ask if it's not an astonishing universe. Not because you're saying it's an astonishing universe. It's mind-blowing. It's absolutely mind-boggling. This is New Age stuff. I'll tell you, studying science, participating in science, make you way more spiritual than some of these spiritual disciplines. Blow your mind. What are your bacteria doing right now in your gut? What are they telling you? Can you feel it? They might be saying, time for a break. (laughs) Thousands of messages per second are being fed into your brain. You call it you. What is it? A vast organism connected to what? A vast, incomprehensible universe. How could you not be compassionate for beings walking around, sentient beings, not knowing what that awake mind is? It's called being in a dream, creating a delusionary reality separate from the universe. Isn't that amazing? It's just mind-boggling. Now, do you want to know about big compassion? Great compassion? What else would you do all day that's blissful. 
what's really blissful? Awakening sentience. To what? Awake mind. What would be more blissful than just awakening sentient life to its own nature? You got something else to do? Something more important to do? You say, oh yes, raising kids. But why wouldn't you do that at the same time? Running a business. You do that at the same time. Every being you meet, every person you meet, every dog you meet, every cat you meet, every flower that you encounter, every amoeba that you see under the microscope is intelligence. What are you going to do? Be dull? Or liberate? How do you liberate amoeba? How do you liberate amoebas? By studying. By knowing what amoeba is like. What's a liberated amoeba? You think it's funny. It is kind of funny. What's a liberated amoeba? Do you know that I, I have a long-term research project that some scientists have told me is absolutely ridiculous, but I think, and some have told me I think it's very, they think it's very important, but I can't quite, as a science project, it's very difficult. One of my long-term scientific inquiries is why a certain diatom is often stressed. I want to know why it's physiologically stressed. And I haven't figured out how, why it is. Well, I finally found out that that diatom I'm studying turned out not to be one diatom, but two. That's cool. So we're going to, we're working on the paper for that. That's kind of fun. That came out of that. But I want to know why creatures are stressed. Not just humans. And when I find out why diatoms are stressed, it gives me clues about humans being stressed. It turns out that diatoms, which are single-celled organisms, are not so different than us. It turns out, I had a real epiphany once sitting in a lab in, in, uh, in um, Christchurch. One day, I had epiphany. And it was obvious, but it dawned on me, that actually all creatures on this planet are stressed. That's just the natural mode. That became the title of the paper. The natural mode is that all beings on this planet are stressed. Why? It's not an easy life. But the natural wake mind turns out not to be stressed. You'll know that when you find it. Make sense? Mind is never stressed. Only the appearances of mind get the label stressed. Find the awake mind and you'll find no stress. Your body may be stressed. Mind isn't stressed. Okay. So the path of meditation is all these practices we do to do what? Find out this naturally compassionate, awake, spontaneously clear, effervescent mind. And that's called the astonishing wakefulness of the universe. It's not you. You're going to discover the universe in its natural state. Or universes today. It's more common now we say universes because we're pretty sure there's more than one universe. There's probably something, what is it? 10 to the 500 estimated universes? Have you ever counted 10 to the 500? Do you know how big that number that is? 
Isn't that amazing? Ten? How many, how many planets were just found that are, are solar How many solar systems have just been recently found by go, going back and looking for the, through the first two years of Kepler uh, telescope data? Just going back through data. 200 more solar systems with planets of our size. That's added on to the 800 known. That's in our solar system alone, which is one of billions and billions of galaxies. Sorry, that's in our known galaxy, not our solar system. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that shocking? How many world systems of sentient beings do you think are out there? Uncountable. As the Buddha said, uncountable. How do you know that? Because he probably discovered that he's not separate from the universe. So that quote by Einstein is pretty amazing. That's a deep quote. It's not about your mind. It's not about your compassion. It's about a whole universe of astonishing beauty and wonderment that requires compassion to wake it up. The universe is already awake. Wake beings up, they're in delusion. Hmm? So one day, one day, someone went, a, a newspaper reporter or an interviewer, went to the Dalai Lama and asked the Dalai Lama, can you please describe how we can be one with the universe? Isn't that, a, isn't, that a, isn't that a question you might ask? How can we be one with the universe? The Dalai Lama's response was something like, but you already are. Wait, wait a minute, you already are. It's not that you have to be told, you, you already are. What a, what a strange question. How could I be one with the universe? Well, you've never not been one with the universe. That's where compassion comes from. Good to mention this. That just saved... Uh, every time I come here, that, uh, having my iPad and the computer saves $300 in excess baggage. Because Air New Zealand charges 150 an excess bag now, so that's $300. So that pays for uh, almost one half of an iPad. Isn't that something? That's quite something. They help, they help one uh, in technology. I don't know if you have any questions, but if you do, I'm happy to, to um, see if I can help you with them. But it's very important to hear the view, hear the big view, and not get caught in the minutiae all the time of my meditation technique, my problems. Hear the big view and let that lead your meditation. Sit in that view in meditation and you'll be, it would be remarkable. Just let go and go, oh yes, oh yes. Stop trying so hard. Just be there in the universe. Let the universe in. So remember what we did when we started this morning, we just turned our heads and we felt good? Imagine if you felt so good you let the universe in. Wouldn't that be something? whole universe just flows right in. Just like a little taste of it this morning. Mm. Why do you feel good? Because there's no separation. Imagine if you really knew there was no separation. Wow. 
And then would you have compassion for people that don't know that? Because, boy, does that cause harm. Hmm? Doesn't that cause harm? Yeah. Really hard. Any questions? That's the meditation, folks. Yes? Because you raised the subject of Dalai Lama towards the end, Hmm. I was in a group of 2,500 people, and the radiation of this man was spectacular. Can you describe what it is? You've probably already said so, but could you describe what it is that he has, that he radiates? Yeah, I just said it. Uh, Extraordinary, great realization of awake compassion. And it permeates. It permeates. It's a palpable permeation. But there are people that can't feel it, by the way. Oh, yeah. I've known people who have said, I I can't feel it. It's okay. Good. Nice words. I've known people that don't even know what he says and just sit there bathing in it. And I asked them, are you ever going to practice? They said, no. I love being in it. Oh, yeah. 20,000 people. What are you here for? I just love being in it. Are you going to practice? No. Others? Practice. It inspires to practice. That's an astonishing being. But that that comes from realization. And not just realization of loving kindness. Realization of unity of mind. A wakeful mind. He's a great master. He's a great, great being. Very sharp mind. How that works, if you want to know how that works, I can't give you a scientific explanation. But thousands of beings know it. Now, a psychologist might say, that's just group, uh, group placebo effect or charisma. Possible. But it does inspire people to be compassionate. It does inspire people to be kind. And it does inspire people to be very awake. So we don't care about the cause. Even though I'm a sort of practicing scientist, I don't care. One day we might know. It's all right. But among people that practice, uh, they're quite certain what it is. A very awake mind of a high degree of realization. So in this sense, uh, there are many different awake minds with different capabilities of different stages of realization. Many. There are people who he even talks about that have extraordinary awakeness, but are not teaching to 20,000 beings, teaching for two or three in their lifetime. But his ability to be there for all beings is astonishing. Astonishing. Any others? Do you feel you have a better feeling of what the meditation is and what all the other meditations are about? So in no way was this weekend session about putting down other meditations, elevating other meditations as the training ground for what? recognizing that which is ineffably awake, natural mind that you have. 
And I will keep saying this to you. As long as you come in my orbit, even near me, I will keep telling you this until the confidence is strong enough that you will then undertake the project to wake it up. That's all. That's all. It's just keep... Re- so you remember the word recollection in the text near the end? The purpose of a Dharma teacher is to cause recollection of liberation in beings. So you go, oh yes, oh yes, oh yes, oh yes. Over and over and over again until you stand on your own two feet and you can do it yourself. Yeah. I can't quite comprehend why we can intellectually understand it, take it in and we we embrace the the idea Mm. But actually doing it on a daily basis when you encounter people, as you do, everywhere you go, you lose it. I mean, it's like, oh, it gets clouded over. So, sort of spontaneously, and, you know, you so have to uh, keep um, mindful of it, you know, in that sense, to, to maintain that. Yep. So it gets wiped out so easily, whereas other things that you learn, you learn them. How much training have you done in this? Well, I think I've done quite a lot. It takes years. I guess that's what you're going to say. Yeah, it takes years. Yeah, it takes years. It takes years. It takes application. And for some of us, most of us, almost all of us, it takes enough retreat work where we're, that's our focus to develop the confidence and the strength that when we go out and we interact with people, that that, that that awakeness doesn't deviate. That's the key point. How much do we need to do? We're all different. So how much do we need to do? How much training do we need to do? So that when we play, we encounter beings, we're playing the symphony and we're not uh, squealing, as I was last night with the clarinet. A few squeals on some notes that I'm having a hard time with. Uh, we're not squealing. We're actually there with them in that awakeness. It takes practice. And, and, and um, look at this. This is a man, the Gomchen, goes before Sili Rangdol and asks him, what's, what's awakeness? These are good meditators. They're going and saying, tell me again. Point it out to me again. Show me again. What's that awakeness? Deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. So traditionally what you do is you go into retreat you build that confidence, you build that strength, and then you go into difficult places to work. To work. Challenging, isn't it? Into the midst of Queenstown. And you look, and you see you practice. We do retreats. We don't do retreats. But you see, if you make, you've heard me say this many times before, Annette, if you make all your life a retreat, not a retreat from something, in advance, every minute, second of your day is a retreat. This is the work. This is the beautiful work of life. Then it unfolds much faster. Which you do, I know that. It unfolds much faster. And I bet you don't lose it as much as you used to. Is that right? And we're a little bit hard on ourselves. That's actually a good thing. I am too, by the way. I can be a little tough on myself too. 
And that's why I go study with my teachers. Hmm? Why? Perfection. You know, it's a dirty word today, among many circles, perfection. But I actually can tell you, I'd like to perfect compassion and awakeness. I work at it. Greater skill of teaching, greater skill of awakening, understanding the fruits of awakening, deeper and deeper and deeper. Why? What else is there to do? (laughs) But does it take time and mastery? Yes. And we're all different. For this being, this path is liberation through teaching, mostly, this life. Other people, 20, 30 years of retreat work. This being actually has spontaneous experience, clarity while teaching. It's right there. This is how this being unfolds. There's other teachers like that. Some teachers tell me personally. You know, I was saying, yeah, same, same thing. So different people awake, awaken differently. This is, this is through, uh, through that, primarily. But retreats, I still need to do retreats. I'd like to do more retreats. Why? Sharper, clearer, brighter, better recognition. Deeper, further, vaster. Sounds like almost like Star Trek, doesn't it? Into the deeper reaches of the universe. It's true. It's true. Never stopping. My dear root teacher, Namjir Rinpoche, I never saw him stop. Ever. Ever. This being was considered, you know, by some totally awakened or fully awake, you know, this kind of thing. He never stopped. Stopped what? He was even excited when he gave a good Dharma talk. He'd come out and he'd elbow me in the, in the ribs. I said, that was pretty good, wasn't it? That was not bad, eh? I said, that was a work of genius, sir. He said, I think so. And he's like amazed what came out of his mouth. He once said to me, do you think I can do that again? I said, oh, I'm sure you can do that again. But he's, he was actually crafting the art of teaching, crafting Dharma. He was sometimes amazed by a class. He'd give a class. My God, that was awesome. Not an egotistical thing, but who did that? He's awakening. He's awakening. He's sharing that awakeness, finding ways to share that with other beings. That's what you do. Every morning you wake up and before you go to work, you practice, this is my meditation day. I'm in retreat. I'm going to Racine, and I'm going to be interacting with beings, and I'm I'm awakening that awakeness. And not by, by throwing a rosary around, not by saying mantras to them, but you being awake in everything you do in body, speech, and mind to show, display that. Not because you're a Buddhist, not because of this, not because of that, because that's what a human being does. A human. A sentient being helping other beings. As simple as this. Helping someone be less confused. Helping someone be less angry. Helping someone settle down and look at the big picture. Helping someone learn something. Helping someone be friendly. That's compassion. Because you know that the mind is residing in a state it doesn't need to be in. So compassion is turning it to the clear, awake mind. It might even get to the point where you give pointing out instructions on the phone. Someone phones you up and says, so what is this meditation? It's clear. Look at the matron. Oh my God! Thank you very much. Yeah. 
the degree to which you realize the awake mind is the degree to which you can surgically point it out to beings. Even if you don't call it pointing out or you don't call it Zogchen or Mahamudra, you display it for beings. You display it for beings in whatever you do. Making a cup of coffee, making them a tea, painting on the wall, showing them a sample, saying something on the phone. It doesn't matter. It's a display of the awake mind. And that's the meditation. Pausing before you lift the phone up. Pausing and going, okay, recollect that vivid natural wakeness before you speak in the phone. And let it go. Just watch it. That's how you practice. If you don't practice that way, all your retreats are start, stop, start, stop, start, stop, start, stop, start, stop, start. start, start. If you make the entire life a retreat, everything and do retreats it gets stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger so so too for this being after almost 40 years 39 years from the time I started studying Dharma so too in that way more retreats more study of, of, of all Dharmas why? Uh, to uh, help beings and so this can become a better vehicle for liberation. For sure. Okay. Plenty? Good. Good. Well, let's share the merit by whatever uh, positive uh, benefits this has accrued by this teaching of Dharma. May it lead to the cessation of suffering for all living beings. Idande punikamang asawaki wahang ho do idande punikamang asawaki wahang ho do idande punikamang asawaki wahang ho do. May all beings be well and happy, and may all beings be established in a continuity of freedom, the unbounded natural unity of compassion and emptiness. Saramangalam, 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 as a great gift and blessing to all beings. Good. Well, I'm happy to share that, uh, that pithy text with you. Beautiful text. And um, we'll see you later. Good.